0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey, Partnerships Editor and a Senior Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm filling in for Julie Robner, who's off to Yale this week to talk health policy. I'm joined today by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, November 29th at 10.30 in the morning. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we're joined by Alice Holstein of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hi. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. After the news, we'll have our Bill of the Month interview that Julie taped earlier this week with KHN's Jay Hancock. He has the story of a woman with multiple sclerosis and a very expensive drug to treat it. Also, for the end of the year, we are going to do another Ask Us Anything. So if you have a burning health policy question, you can email it to whatthehealth, that's all one word, at kff.org. And one more reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let's get to the news for the week. I'd like to start with the House Democratic leadership elections. Of course, we know that House Democrats overwhelmingly picked Nancy Pelosi to be their nominee for House Speaker. While she won by an impressive 203 to 32, she still has to get about a dozen votes to win that full floor vote in January. We should also note that her lieutenants, Steny Hoyer of Maryland and Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, were unopposed for House Majority Leader and Majority Whip. So Alice, I want to start with you on this House Democrats health agenda. Is this really going to change much in light of Pelosi still trying to get enough votes to be House Speaker?
1: She is down by fewer votes than she was at this same point the last time Democrats were set to take control of the House. And so I think it's pretty widely assumed that she will be able to get the votes she needs. Um, She's already been peeling off defectors. Doing Um, a little trading there. Exactly, exactly. Um, And striking deals. And I think it's interesting that um, most of the opposition is coming from the more moderate wing of the party, not the more progressive wing. The more progressive wing is supporting Pelosi, um, including uh, folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who've been seen as real rabble-rousers, are Uh, in fact, endorsing her. So I think it's pretty telling that we will likely have the exact same trio of democratic leadership that we had the last time around. And I think that signals for health policy that, you know, these are the folks that got the Affordable Care Act passed. They are very invested in defending it. They are a lot less invested in breaking it and starting something radically different, um, going full you know, Medicare for all, single payer. Uh, I think that in order to keep the folks who do want that, which is a growing constituency, happy, I think we will see some hearings start there. And, you know, everything starts with hearings. And I think there's a lot of different plans right now. And there's going to be a lot of disagreement over, which is the best way to go forward. But um I think before all of that can happen, the House has a lot to decide on how to best go about protecting the Affordable Care Act, especially if a court comes along and strikes down some or all of it.
0: And of course, that's a reference to this Texas lawsuit, which we've talked about extensively, some Republican attorneys general trying to strike down the whole law. Is that expected
2: any day, right? Yes. Yeah, And it's this huge wild card. We don't know when it's going to come. That's really up to the judge. He can take as long as he needs to to reach his decision. And there are a number of different outcomes to that case. So, you know, one is that he could say everything is fine the way it is. Uh, One thing is he he could agree with the litigants and say the entire Affordable Care Act is invalid. That would be a huge uh, finding that would have effects not just on the parts of the Affordable Care Act that we often talk about here, the Medicaid expansion and the uh, exchanges for people who buy their own coverage, but lots of other things. The Affordable Care Act was a huge law. Uh, It touched on workplace wellness programs, on uh, transparency about payments by pharmaceutical companies to doctors, uh, huge changes to the way that Medicare pays for uh, hospitals and to private health insurers. So there's uh, that would be a very large uh, finding. I think the, the outcome that most of the Hill is bracing for is the idea that has been put forward by the Trump Justice Department, which is that if the individual mandate is found to be unconstitutional, then the protections against pre existing conditions in the Affordable Care Act also ought to go with that. And so that sets up, I think, a real debate about. Does Congress want to replace those provisions, which it could do using a separate piece of legislation? Or is that a sort of bargaining point for some new direction for the health care system? And I would imagine that each party is going to have, you know, its own ideas about what that might be.
3: I think in the meantime, too, while we're waiting for that ruling to come through, you know, there's a possibility of the the Members trying to sort of intervene in some way, um, so the House could, you know, make so, make a statement by by doing that, um, and to show that you know they support pre-existing conditions. Um, but like you said, it's a wild card when it's going to happen. So um, you know, whether they do that, they'd have to move pretty quickly next year. And the,
2: and the politics of this, I think, are somewhat complicated. This is a lawsuit that was brought by Republican politicians in the states. It's consistent with the Republican Party's dislike of the Affordable Care Act that is longstanding. its efforts to overturn the law. On the other hand, we did see in the last election a lot of Republicans, both in the Senate and in the House, making very explicit statements in their campaigns for re-election or for election that they wanted to protect pre-existing conditions and that you didn't need to worry about them as wanting to take them away. And so it does make me wonder whether you might see more of a bipartisan coalition for some kind of law to restore those protections should the court knock them out. And I guess one more thing to say just is that the court decision we're waiting for is a district court judge. Um, so that's sort of the first step. And the most likely thing is no matter how he rules, that ruling will be what's called state. It'll just be sort of put on the shelf as the case gets appealed up to the appeals court and potentially the Supreme Court. So no matter what ruling occurs, it will set off this political process to kind of clean up behind it. But it won't necessarily cause immediate changes to the law or to health insurance markets. And so I think... It's important, and the responses to it will be significant. But I think we shouldn't panic about it uh, causing immediate changes or harms.
1: But um, one thing we're hearing from sources in the House is that um, the move to intervene in the lawsuit is something they're really seriously looking at, and I think it's it's more than just symbolic. I mean, the entire case hinges on what did Congress intend? Did Congress intend to? have the rest of the Affordable Care Act survive without the individual mandate. If you have the House as an official party in the lawsuit getting up there and arguing, yes, in fact, we did intend for the rest of the Affordable Care Act to survive. We debated getting rid of the whole thing and we chose not to. So we clearly, in the record, uh, wanted these protections to continue. And I think that is something they're looking at, especially because they would not have to involve the Republican Senate at all in that decision. Right.
0: All right. So we shall see what happens there. Let's move next to the Food and Drug Administration, also known to a lot of folks as the FDA. They've proposed changes in their decades-old system for approving medical devices. Critics have said that they're really worried that problems with some implants, things like hip replacements that failed prematurely or surgical mesh that's been linked to pain and bleeding, that that is linked somehow to the current system. What are some of the key points here, Anna, in this new approval system? What are people talking about?
3: Well, how it works right now for most medical devices is um, when they are seeking approval, they don't do clinical trials like we're used to seeing um, drug makers do. They will basically show that their device is similar to one that is already on the market. So that, that device that they're comparing it to, the FDA refers to those as predicate devices. Um, They found, the FDA looked into it, they found that 20% of the devices on the market were compared to Older devices that are more than ten years old. So just think about how much technology changes in those ten years, and how many you know, how many devices are now interoperable, and just different different things that have that have been upgraded on them. So they're worried that comparing them to these older devices um, is not the best way forward. They want to be able to update that technology, and so what the FDA said they're considering were a couple things. Um, two main points. One is they are looking at um, posting publicly those devices that are compared to ones that are more than that are 10 years old or more and that is sort of a, a push to kind of get them to compare them to something newer um, sort of shaming them a little bit in public and then the um, the other thing they're looking at is sort of um, redoing a lot of these, these predicate devices, um, saying these older ones can't be used anymore. So they're not pushing those devices off the market. They're not saying they're unsafe. They're just saying if there's new technology, we want you looking at something newer um, as a predicate device. So they'll kind of be rethinking what those devices are. This is all, this is all something that's under consideration, you know, not something the FDA has moved on yet.
0: And is the medical device industry in favor of this? Have they said anything yet? What do you think they're going to do?
3: They they said that they're looking at it, which usually means, um, you know, they're probably not going to end up in, in favor of it. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where um, they were hit with it and they haven't come out exactly with, with a statement on it yet. Um, you know, it's... Usually industry doesn't like change, and so I you know, would assume that they they might be in the same boat, um, but you know, we have to wait and see, I think.
0: And theoretically, we could also see Congress possibly intervening, right? Because medical devices are covered by Medicare as well as private insurance and Medicaid, so you might see some interplay there.
3: Well, and um, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, did say that Congress, they might need some help from Congress to even do some of this. Um, so certainly it could set up a uh, uh, some legislation, you know, every every five years, the FDA um, redoes, all, they have to reauthorize all these user fees that they get from companies, medical device companies, drug companies to review their new products. Um, and that usually turns into a big piece of legislation that, um, has a bunch of other riders on it, so this could that could be something where Six, say is. the name. <laughs> oh. it, well, whoa, 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 for the wait. for the medical <laughs> <laughs> device one is yeah. the meta is Medufa. No. Medufa. Med-
0: Med- Med- <laughs> Sorry, I got my accurate.
3: It's alphabet <laughs> is the drug one, um, but it, yeah, they, it's the medical device user fee act. Sorry, I just, um, like, I just like saying <laughs> Medufa. <laughs> so <laughs> Medufa is a good one. Medufa <laughs> is another.
0: Well, speaking with Congress and speaking of <laughs> Medicare, let's talk a little bit about Medicare prescription drug. Prices. President Trump, as we know, has been very active in saying he wants to control what consumers pay for drugs, what government programs like Medicare and Medicaid pay for drugs. And this week he proposed some policy changes that he said will lower costs for Medicare beneficiaries. But critics of this proposal say that it could really hurt patients who are living with chronic conditions like AIDS or cancer or depression or epilepsy. Anna, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to swing back to you to give us the nuts and bolts of this.
3: Well, so these were a lot of changes that were um – Proposed for the um, 2020 plans that offer Medicare Advantage and Medicare Part D, um, I think the the most the thing that got the most attention um, and that will that you mentioned could affect some of these patients with with pretty severe diseases is um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services proposed to change how they deal with protected classes of drugs. Um, these are six classes. Um, there are six different therapeutic areas, so there are drugs like antipsychotics, antidepressants. And they have to
0: cover them, right? And they, they have to, to cover them. The, the health plans and Medicare. Prescription drugs have to cover these. They plans.
3: have to cover every every drug in these categories. So usually, they have sort of the ability to pick and choose, and the, and this you know helps the plans negotiate a lower price for those drugs or to get rebates and different discounts. Um, in this case, they aren't able to do that with these, and so what CMS wants to do is possibly give. Them the plans more ability to negotiate. They'll let them do things like prior authorization um, or step therapy, which is when you start with you know a cheaper drug and then you get to go up to the the other, um, other, try other drugs. Um, but they also, they don't want to get rid of any of those classes. So that's been tried before the Obama administration tried to limit those six classes. It did not go well. They abandoned the effort. This was in 2014. Um, they had a lot of pushback from patient groups and even Congress. And so what they're trying to do is they want to be able to exclude some of the drugs from the protected classes if they take certain actions. So If they're, these are all for drugs that are, don't really have any competition. They're called single source drugs. But if they increase the price of those drugs more than inflation, then plans can exclude them. So this is still up to the insurers whether they're going to do it or not. And then if they, um, If they come to market with a drug, it's a new drug, but it's really just an update on a formulation, like it's an extended release or something like that, then they don't have to include that if they don't want to either.
0: And prior authorization, if I recall, is you have to get permission from the insurance company. The physician would have to get that permission before that drug could be dispatched to you. Right. And and the
3: idea is um, some of these protected classes they're they are approved for other things as well that don't really fall under the the same therapeutic areas as they're, they're protected, so this would give the insurers the ability to sort of say well this this use isn't protected, so we don't have to you know we don't have to cover that one for you um, and patient groups rightly you know as you mentioned, are going to be pretty upset um that you know these are something they're used to getting they say they they need the ability to try all of these drugs because. These are hard to treat conditions that, you know, they want different options to sure. be able to, to treat. So um, there's going to be, again, I think some pushback from them. I think this is such
2: a good illustration of why the idea of letting Medicare negotiate for drugs is so complicated and fraught. So this is a kind of small version of this. But in order for negotiation to work, the insurance company, whether it's the government or it's a private company, needs to be able to walk away from the table. You know, if you're trying to haggle with a seller and they know that you're going to buy the product no matter what, you just have very little leverage to lower the price. If you can walk away and say, forget it, I'm just not going to buy this item this year, then they have a lot more pressure to try to give you a better price. And so all of the economic evidence suggests that for negotiations to work, you have to be able to not cover things. doesn't mean that it that things mostly won't get covered you know in general that kind of gives the threat is enough to improve negotiation but the trade-off is real because if insurance companies decide not to cover certain drugs some of the time that means that patients will no longer have access to the drug and that is a very difficult trade-off you know some of these diseases that we're talking about that are protected classes are diseases like cancer and HIV where people are really sick where you know um, as Anna said, there, are, you know, different people seem to respond differently to different drugs. People don't want to have to switch their drugs, and it's it's just very difficult. You know, if we had a Medicare for all system or had a Medicare drug negotiation system, as some Democrats advocate, we would face these same trade offs that are being con- that are being argued about in the context of this more private setting. Which is, if you can say no, and you will say no sometimes, that means that some patients are not going to get the drug that they want anymore.
3: And just to give an idea of what that trade-off is, um, Medicare said that they, in the, in the private sector, um, these commercial plans where they don't have protected classes, they're getting discounts on these drugs of 20 to 30 percent. And Medicare is getting discounts of about 6 percent. So obviously there is a big gap there on, on what Medicare is paying.
0: Alice, do you think I see a congressional fight here? I mean, maybe, maybe not, but it seems like any time you go into Medicare, right, that is sacred territory mm-hmm. for a member of the House or the Senate. Uh, you know hospitals usually the biggest employers in a district uh they're biggest employers in states many times there's all sorts of mechanics. Do you see Congress intervening here, and how potentially
1: well it it is really fraught, and I think you know you you had this coalition come together to defend the Affordable Care Act against all these attacks, and I think what we'll see when we try to move beyond that is the splintering of the coalition because you you got the hospital groups the patient groups the insurers to to all agree on these on these you know core ideas and when you try to shake up the system and move into something like drug price negotiation you're going to have those groups pitted against each other as we're already seeing with this smaller more modest proposal so i think like everything you're it's going to start with hearings and i think you're going to have some of these groups come and and really tell Congress about these trade-offs and warn about moving in this direction.
2: And, and, and also like the very fact that these are classes of drugs that were protected in the original Medicare Part D legislation should be assigned to everyone that these are disease groups that have a lot of political leverage because there are lots of other diseases where Medicare only has to cover a couple of drugs in their class mm-hmm. and they can say no to everything else you know for what are categories of like serious disease where in diabetes right they don't right. have to cover everything right and yeah, card,
3: sure. is it cardiology and my, much much cancer I mean a lot of cancer because this is this covers oral chemotherapy. It, is protected, but there are a lot of cancer drugs that don't fall under that as well.
2: So, you know, these are, these are the sort of big gun patient advocacy groups and uh, pharmaceutical interests that presumably would come back to the table if they felt like this was a real threat to them.
3: But they the insurance companies and the pharmacy benefit managers do really like this, um, and so you know there will be there will be industry groups um, who will be pushing for it to happen um, on the other side and And I don't think um, Congress is particularly in love with um, drug makers at the moment, um, even though you know they they sort of have been on their side um, much in the past, but you know actually coming out to save them might be another step they might not be willing to take right now.
0: With that in mind, is there any potential common ground between the Trump administration and Democrats on drug pricing? Nancy Pelosi has talked a little bit about this. It's I think the president, president Trump has signaled he might be interested. We just talked about a potential point of conflict. Is there, are there potential points of harmony
3: I I think so the um the, the this might be some Republicans worst nightmare but um you know there president trump has talked about you know medicare price negotiation um previously he has you know not been for it since taking office but he was Um, it was something that he considered as a good idea. Um, And then, you know, there are other things he actually Trump and Senator Grassley um, met to talk a little bit yesterday, Senator Grassley will head the finance committee um, in the Senate. And so they, um, you know, I don't know specifics of what they talked about. But Senator Grassley has been for things like um, importing drugs from other countries. And that's you know so there are possibly, and, and Democrats have supported that idea as well. So there are possibly ways that they could um, they could come together on drug pricing and cut some deals if Republicans were, you know, to decide that, I think that that's something they want to go along with. The hard thing is, do they want to give a win possibly to Democrats? There you
1: go. Although, if if it happened when President Trump was still in office, it would potentially be a win for him as well ahead of the 2020 campaign. So I think there there could be interest on both sides, and I agree that there does seem to be bipartisan interest on the importation side and also on
2: doing more with um, generics. But again, I think the. It's worth remembering that the kinds of changes that will have big effects, you know, that are really going to, like, hit people's pocketbooks in a major way are likely to have trade offs. And I think this drug negotiation is a really good example of that. So, you know, you give the, the insurers more leverage to lower the price of pharmaceuticals. That's going to benefit a lot of people at the drugstore who are paying deductibles, who are paying premiums. That's going to come at the cost of certain patients who are going to have a more difficult time getting the drugs that they want. And so you can do these kind of small marginal things uh, that maybe don't, uh, upset the apple cart as much, but then they probably benefit the population a little bit less too. The sort of mm-hmm. big stuff has big trade-offs, and that makes it difficult as a matter of policy, but also difficult as a matter of politics.
0: Great. So we have a lot to look forward to, potential action on the ACA, perhaps potential congressional interference or harmony on the changes in the FDA approval process for the medical devices, and we'll see what happens next on these Medicare drug categories in Part D. So that's the news for the week, and now... Here's our Bill of the Month interview that Julie did with KHN's Jay Hancock. If you have a medical bill that you'd like to submit for the series that we're doing with NPR, please do so at the link on our podcast page at khn.org. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast
4: my colleague, Jay Hancock, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. So, Jay, tell us about this month's patient and what kind of treatment she needed.
5: This month's patient for Bill of the Month uh, is Sharice Hickson. She lives outside of Cleveland in Ohio. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about six years ago. This year, her doctor wanted to change her medicine. She'd been taking uh, an oral medicine. All these medicines are intended to delay the progress of what's a, you know, really challenging chronic disease. And her doctor wanted to put her on a new uh, drug called Ocrevus, approved only last year, that is uh, infused into the bloodstream rather than injected with a shot or taken orally. And that required her to go to a hospital, in this case, the Cleveland Clinic. And she did that, and we chronicle her experience in uh, our story this month. And what kind of insurance does she have? She is disabled because of her multiple sclerosis. She's 39 years old, so she cannot work. So she has Medicare, which covers disabled folks. Yes, as, we should as, we should
4: stop and point this out because that will surprise people. That yes, it will. If you have a, a long enough work history and you become disabled, you qualify for Medicare.
5: Yes. You don't have to be over 65 necessarily. She's also was highly trained. She was a nurse's aide uh, in a home and then she trained to be a A medical billing expert, uh, but she can't work, so her income is very low. So she also qualifies for Medicaid, uh, the state-based program for low-income people, in this case in Ohio. So So she's, she's
4: what we know as a dual eligible. Correct. So she went in and she had this new drug. And uh, how much was she asked to pay? Well, first, how much did it cost?
5: She had two encounters. Uh, when you start Okravis, you you get a half a dose two weeks apart before you get up to speed. And she had both of them before she got the bill. She went back home to her uh, home outside of Cleveland and received a bill in the mail. to Her surprise had a top line total charges of $123,000 for what was an outpatient procedure—she didn't spend the night in the hospital— and uh, a residual amount that she owed of uh, $3,600, which was very substantial for her.
4: Now, how much does this drug normally cost? Is it really $123,000? for this? So it's basically one dose, right? Two half doses delivered two weeks apart?
5: They do not discount the price when you have a half a dose. So, as we all know, pinning down a specific price— in anything in healthcare is like nailing jello, and this is one of those cases. The $123,000 uh, included the infusion services that she had in the hospital, the room charge, and so forth, but most of it, the large, large majority for it, was uh, indicated on the bill as being for the medicine, the Ocrevus. However, that's not the real charge. That is what the hospitals call the Charge Master charge. And in many, many cases, probably most cases, the charge master amount is not what actually gets paid. It's the sticker price. Um, In this case, the amount that the Cleveland Clinic was ultimately paid for these treatments was a little bit less than $30,000. That reflects the standard Medicare discount for uh, Part B medicines delivered in a clinical setting. And that was also substantially less than the list price of Ocrevus as listed by Genentech, its manufacturer, division of of Roche Pharmaceuticals, which is about $65,000 per year. That is the average wholesale price, uh, which again is a starting point for negotiations. But when it all came out in the wash, her procedure was covered, the medicine was covered. she still got this very substantial bill, which she should not have received.
4: yeah, that was my next question when you're when you 're a dual eligible on Medicare and Medicaid, in theory, you should never be billed by a doctor or a hospital because what medicare doesn 't pay Medicare does. Do we know at this point why she got this bill?
5: We asked the Cleveland Clinic and we never got a clear answer. Uh, my understanding that as dual eligible, she should never have been billed in the first place. She gets this bill. She'd never received a bill before for her MS medicines because uh, for various reasons. This one shows up. It's very expensive. She freaks out. And she does the right thing, which is calls the hospital and says, what's going on? This surprised me. I can't afford this. And they told her to go online and apply for financial assistance based on her income and other factors, which she did, but she still had to go online. She had to print it out, and then she had to send it in by mail and wait to see what would happen. It took a week or two, um, and she eventually was told that she qualified for an income-based assistance program that Ohio has that partly uses federal funds, and the bill was, was wiped to zero. Um, It's still unclear why they didn't just bill Medicaid for it, but they dipped into this other fund. And uh, frankly, I'm still sort of wondering what actually happened, but um, I never found out.
4: And where is she in all of this? Because presumably she's going to go back and get another dose of this medicine at some point.
5: She's going to go back and get another dose of this medicine. She saw her doctor recently. She was so concerned about going through all this again that she... Not the medicine, the billing part. The billing part. Um, and the medicine. She's not super crazy about needles. Uh, but between that and uh, the billing part, she was thinking about, she went and saw her doctor recently and said, maybe I should you know, go back to what I was on. He wants her to give it another chance. She's still concerned about going through all this again, although she does know how to seek and obtain the financial assistance if she needs to. But the upshot is she shouldn't be getting the bill in the first place, and uh, under this Ohio program, you're required to apply each time that this happened. You would think that uh, with you know the greatest health care system in the world, that people could figure out how to uh, make that work for her, but apparently not
4: so bottom line it's good to know if you're not supposed to have to make copays like this, it's good to know that and to be ready to pick up the phone and say that
5: oh absolutely, and she'd worked in healthcare care, she knows how the industry works. She is sophisticated enough to know how to go to bat for herself and uh, get it resolved. A lot of people don't. And so, you know, a lot of people are are going to get billed once and maybe not see it, not pay attention. They may get billed again. It may go to collections. Lots of bad things can happen. And they have insurance. It just shouldn't happen in the first place. Well, more to come. Uh, Thank you very
0: much, Jay Hancock.
5: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, we are back, and it's time to move to our extra credits segment. That's where we each suggest a story that we read in the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We'll post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Before we get to this week's extra credits, there's a small correction about last week's book segment. We said that the title character in The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks had breast cancer. Of course, as some sharp-eared listeners pointed out, she had cervical cancer. Thank you for keeping us on the straight and narrow. So let's go ahead and move to this week's extra credits. Anna, why don't you start?
3: Sure. Mine um, comes from the Washington Post. The title, uh, the headline is "Overdoses, Bedsores, Broken Bones: What Happened When a Private Equity Firm Sought to Care for Society's Most Vulnerable." This is by Peter Wariski and Dan Keating. Um, it takes a look at. Um, Manor Care, it's a chain, a nursing home chain that came under the ownership of Carlisle Group, um, which is a a large, very rich private equity firm. And um, as private equity firms do, there are a lot of different deals and, I guess, money-making schemes, you might call, um, that they they engage in. And that sort of – this chronicles how that took away from care at these this nursing home. They cut staff um, and – There were a lot more citations for for violations, for not taking care of bed sores, for not helping people eat or take care of their personal hygiene. Um, Just, you know, different awful, awful scenarios um, where the care was cut and it obviously affected the patients. So I think it's an interesting read to see what it means um, when, you know, private equity that doesn't know anything about nursing homes gets involved in this industry.
0: And they could certainly get more involved. They've certainly gotten involved in air ambulance, for example. Right. So that could be definitely happening. Alice, what's your extra credit?
1: Well, mine comes from uh, Wired and uh, was a collaboration with uh, Reveal, the investigative uh, group. And it's from September, but I think it's relevant right now with the uh, romaine lettuce scare um, that has uh, made a lot of people sick and... uh, just disrupted the, the whole nation's food system. Uh, it's called The Science is Clear, Dirty Farm Water is Making Us Sick. It is about how... Um There was uh, an FDA rule that would have gone into effect this year, um, created under the Obama administration, that would have required farmers to test their water for contaminants, um, particularly from uh, animal manure, uh, which is a huge problem and which causes uh, E. coli and other of these uh, dangerous outbreaks that can really kill people. Now, that regulation was supposed to start this year, but the Trump administration decided to push it back for another four years. Um, So, Farmers are not testing their water, and that, as the article lays out, leads directly to what we're seeing today.
0: That is amazing, Margo. What's your extra credit?
2: Um, I wanted to highlight an article from Alison Kojak at NPR called Rethinking Bedrest for Pregnancy, which is just kind of a stunning and very upsetting article that focuses on one woman who was ordered to undergo bed rest because her cervix had become shortened during her pregnancy with her second child. And as a result of that bed rest, uh, her husband had to leave his job. She had to cut back on her work hours. She was unable to care for her child in the way that she wished to. Their finances were completely disrupted. And then Allison uh, sort of zoomed out and looked at the evidence about bed rest, which is a very widely prescribed practice in obstetrics. A very large majority of obstetricians do recommend bed rest for some of their patients who are at risk of miscarriage or other kinds of pregnancy-related health problems. But there's almost no solid evidence that it improves outcomes. And there is a lot of evidence that you know, putting aside even the health risks of asking pregnant women to not move, to not wait there. It also has just huge kind of social and personal and financial costs for these women that they're being asked to leave the labor force, to not do the things that they love, to step away from child care. Um, it was just incredibly maddening to see how this extremely widespread practice has been so little studied.
0: Was it suggested in the article, I was trying to remember, did the... You know, American Academy of Gynecologists or anything, uh, an obstetricians, is there any suggestion that they're going to now prescribe bed rest less, or are they trying to come out with any more different recommendations? Or
2: It didn't really seem in this article like the recommendations are going to change. And there were all of these amazing quotes from obstetricians where they said, yeah, like, we know the evidence isn't that good, but, you know, you're not going to tell me my own ex- in my own experience that this hasn't helped protect women's pregnancies. I mean, there just seemed like it's such an ingrained part of practice that there was a fear of even considering what the evidence that we have now shows. But clearly also there's a paucity of evidence because it really hasn't been studied in the sort of comprehensive way that we would want it to be given the overall risk profile of this prescription. All right. My
0: extra credit is from Abby Goodenough of the New York Times, and she writes about how Dayton, Ohio, which had the highest overdose over, uh, beg your pardon, the highest drug overdose Death rates in the nation last year, and it was the worst in the entire state of Ohio, made many changes to cut that fatal overdoses rate by more than 50 percent from last year. Experts credit the state's decision to expand the Medicaid program. As we know, the Affordable Care Act made that optional for states, but taking that step at Ohio gave nearly 700,000 low-income adults access to free addiction and mental health treatment. So while this is a very upbeat story and kind of a lessons learned and can kind of other communities and states learn from what Dayton has done, I know, Margo, this morning you wrote about the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that have some new statistics on opioid overdoses that are perhaps not as optimistic.
2: Yeah, the CDC numbers are just incredibly bleak. So uh, they're I did report over the summer on some preliminary numbers. So this may sound familiar if you remember that report. But we now have final numbers for 2017. More than 70,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in 2017. That's about a 10% increase over 2016. And what the data really show is that the biggest contributor to this steeply climbing death rate from drugs is the penetration of synthetic opioids into the drug supply. So these are drugs that are often described as fentanyl, but it's actually sort of like a family of drugs, fentanyl and its analogs, that have been mixed into other drugs or in many markets have essentially replaced heroin. So people who are on the street buying what they think is heroin, they're buying these synthetic drugs uh, and... These drugs are stronger, the mixtures of them are less stable, and they make it much harder for even experienced drug users to know what kind of dose they're taking. So, you know, we've seen in a lot of American cities where we have kind of populations of longtime heroin users who were doing okay. – I mean, they had heroin addiction. They may have had health problems related to that, but they were staying alive These people now are injecting drugs where they don't understand the dose, and they're dying of overdoses. And I spent a lot of time this week talking with public health researchers and other people who really understand this epidemic, and I think actually Dayton, Ohio is a really great example of kind of the whole story. So uh, in Abby's story, she documented that Dayton is doing all of the things that or many of the things that public health advocates want cities and states to do. They've expanded treatment, they've expanded coverage, they're handing out Narcan, which is a drug that can counteract an overdose. So if someone is with their friend and their friend overdoses, and they can give them this drug, they can save them on the spot. Uh, they've changed the way that they're doing police response. There's all kind they've changed the way that emergency room's respond. They're doing lots of things that are right. But her story also noted that the recent evidence from drug seizures suggests that a very dangerous kind of fentanyl called carfentanil that was in the drug supply in Dayton earlier seems to be in the drug supply less now. And so it's very difficult to tease out these different factors. When you look at the national picture, it seems like increasingly what kind of drugs people are taking is what is explaining the deadliness of the epidemic. Then all these other services obviously come into play uh, in terms of trying to reduce drug addiction, trying to help people recover once they become addicted. But, you know, you have to keep them alive. Right. It's all extremely
0: important. So thank you. That's our show. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps others find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us with your questions or comments, particularly if you have questions for our next Ask Us Anything. We're at WhatTheHealth@kff.org, Or you can tweet me. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. At
1: Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein, At Anna Edney. We'll be
0: back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.